Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ruth. You might have been familiar to turn in the book of John. We've been there for a little while. We will come back to John uh, in just about a month, but we're going to spend this Christmas season in the book of Ruth. It's early in your Bibles, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. It's a small book toward the very beginning of our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't have one of your own, please take that one when you leave as a gift. You say, why, why Ruth for Christmas? Well, in the story of Ruth, we will see that in this little town of Bethlehem, there is a surprising story of redemption that has worked, where God visits his people in Bethlehem to provide for them and through that, redeem them and give them hope for the future. Merry Christmas. It's a very story, this is a prequel in some sense to that story we'll read about far later on in the Bible, when God would again visit Bethlehem and would again bring about surprising redemption in the form of a child in a manger. The book of Ruth begins, chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malone and Chilion. They're Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malone and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. In the 1700s, there was a, a man who wrote a beautiful hymn. It's one of my favorites. It's become known as God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And the words to this are beautiful and remind us of God's providence, even in moments where we can't see what he's doing. I, I want to read this to you because it's a fitting introduction to the book of Ruth. This is, in a sense, the summary of what Ruth is about, what Naomi finds herself in. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. 
Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Welcome to Ruth. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Does that resonate with you? Have you ever felt like the events in your life just don't make sense? It's not adding up. Your life is a spiraling mess that is seemingly out of control. And the best description that you could come up with for God's care for you or God's provision or God's providence is that it's a frowning providence. He's kind of looking at you and he's maybe disinterested. He's out to get you. He's dealing bitterly with you and you wonder what is he up to? Is he there? Does he care? Is he dealing bitterly with me in these moments? I, I, I don't get what God is doing. It's exactly where Naomi is in our text. She looks at God and all she sees is a frowning providence. She knows too much to know. She knows God's in control. She doesn't doubt that. But she feels the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. From the ashes of her life, from the depths of despair, she thinks the Lord has turned against her. Some of you know what's that like, what that's like. And maybe even this morning, you sit there from the despair and the hardship and the heartbreak of that moment. And as we think about the Christmas season, we remember that Christmas is in many ways about the waiting. Advent is about the waiting. It's not just about remembering that Christ has come. It's about remembering how the people waited. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. They longed for the see him come and they waited and waited and waited for the arrival of the Messiah. And so too do you and I wait for the return of the Messiah. We wait in the midst of a broken world filled with grief, filled with hardship, filled with plenty of confusing questions, and filled with times where we wonder, what is God up to? Where it looks like the clouds have darkened the sky and we wonder if God really is for us at all. That's where the book of Ruth comes into play. The book of Ruth teaches us that in the midst of the heartbreak and the hardship, in the waiting and in the longing of life, in the broken dreams of life and in the greatest joys of life, the Lord is kind toward his people and is working his purposes for our good even when we cannot see it. That even when you and I can't see what he is up to, we trust that God is working his purposes for our good and for his glory. That's what Ruth is about. And so we come at the beginning of this book and we see that this really is a tragedy that is unfolding. And we see the first scene that unfolds is the compounding grief of this woman, Naomi. Her grief just is piling up upon itself. This story begins as a tragedy, and there are at least five indicators in these opening verses of how this tragedy unfolds and adds together. The first is that there is rebellion. This is in the very first words of the book. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, this is a historical marker telling us when this happened, but this is more than just a historical marker. This is also a moral marker. This is an indicator of the morality or the depravity of the day. Turn back in your Bibles one page to the very end of the book of Judges. So it says, this is the days where the judges ruled. The book of Ruth is happening during that period of time. This is a time when Israel was rebelling against the Lord, sinning, and the Lord raises up judges to call the people to repentance. Some of these judges did a good job and did their job well. Some of them did not. But this is a period marked by uh, rebellion and a refusal to repent from God's people. At the very end of the book of Judges, the words right before the book of Ruth in our Bibles, Judges chapter one, verse 25, uh, 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the context against which Ruth happens. And when the Bible says that, it does not say it as a compliment. See, as modern Westerners, especially as Americans, we are extremely individualistic. And we think that someone doing what is right in his own eyes is wonderful and exactly what we aim for. 
that we filter everything through the lens of what seems best to me, what seems right in my own eyes. But listen, friends, when the Bible says that, though it sounds to us like the pinnacle of human flourishing, the Bible says it is the pinnacle of human rebellion. They trusted in themselves, not in the Lord. That's the period where this is set. This is a period of rebellion that is unfolding. And it is a period of famine. The second marker, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We don't know whether this was a divine punishment for the rebellion, but we do know that the people are starving. And in the little town of Bethlehem, they have no food. Bethlehem means house of bread. So in the house of bread, there is no bread. They're hungry. There's a famine in the land. The third indicator is perhaps there is distrust going on here with this family. Now, the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, so we shouldn't draw too firm of conclusions from it, and yet can't help but wonder. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. What you have, the onset of this story, is a man who decides for his family, we're going to leave the land where God has promised provision and go looking for it in a foreign pagan land. Moab descended from Lot with his incestuous relationship with his daughter, and they came to worship their own gods and rival Israel. And so what you have here is a man who says, we're going to leave the place where God has promised his provision, and we're going to go to a pagan land to find it instead. Now, again, the text doesn't explicitly tell us this was bad. This could be he had no other choice in providing for his family. And yet, against the backdrop of everyone doing what was right in his own eyes, we can't help but wonder, at least, if this is a sign of distrust in the Lord and seeking his provision outside of his design. Whether it was sinful or not, though, though Elimelech flees Bethlehem looking to avoid tragedy, he finds tragedy in Moab instead. The fourth marker is that there is death. Verse 3 tells us, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These refugees have fled to Moab, and there Elimelech dies. Two sons left without their father, a wife left without her husband. It's a heartbreaking tragedy that only gets worse. The fifth marker is that there is hopelessness as the death adds up. It was not only Elimelech, it was the two sons. Verse four, the sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And it would be nearly impossible for any of us to describe or imagine the level of grief that has befallen Naomi in these moments. In fact, I think you could make a very good case that she is even worse off than Job, who is the poster boy of suffering in the Bible. You think about suffering, you think of Job. You could make a case Naomi's even worse off than Job. Job could start over. Naomi knows, I can't. I'm hopeless. I have no future. The day her sons died might as well have been the day that her death certificate was signed and sealed. She is as good as dead. In fact, I wonder if there's a a hint of this by the language in the text. Verse two, it says, the name of his wife was Naomi. Verse three, the husband of Naomi. But then verse five, the woman was left without her two sons. It's almost as if she's lost her very name. She's lost her very self, her very identity. She died the day her sons died. She has no hope. She has no inheritance. That day, to have no husband and no sons meant there was no one to provide for her, no one to take care of her, no one to carry on the family lineage and the family legacy. She was left with nothing. She's hopeless. She knows it's too late for me to start over. Naomi feels like her entire life has collapsed in upon her and that there cannot be a bright future ahead of her. She is crushed with grief, pressed to the dust, and devoid of hope. Some of you might know what that's like. So a decade after she had left Bethlehem for Moab, she prepares to return home, and she says, I went away full, but I've been brought back empty. She's not entirely empty, we'll see it in a moment, but she feels that she has Nothing. She left with a husband and two sons. She possessed everything that in her day a woman would have needed for a security, comfort, provision for the future, and she returns with none of it. But she does return 
That's a key theme that unfolds in this book, including in this chapter. That word return shows up 12 times in chapter one alone. Verse six is the first time it shows up. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went out on their way to return to the land of Judah. She hears, she's out in the fields of Moab. She hears, the Lord has visited Bethlehem. And I wonder, I wonder if if Naomi's, why aren't we in Bethlehem? That's our home, why aren't we there? So she makes plans, we're gonna return home. We're gonna return to Bethlehem. The Lord's provided for them there. They have food there. Why don't we go back? I, I got nothing else. Why don't I go back home? And so she turns to return home. But as she does so, she stops and realizes something. That there are these two women going with her and they shouldn't be going with her. And so she's going to try to persuade Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, to turn back and return to their homes instead. And so this enters us into our second scene unfolding, and we have seen the compounding grief of Naomi, but we also see the astounding loyalty of Ruth. Now this woman, Ruth, for whom the book is named, she takes center stage in the narrative. And we're gonna see she's a shining example of faith in the darkness. And so we pick it up in verse eight, and we see Naomi's going to try to persuade them to return, not to Bethlehem with her, but to their home country of Moab and their families. Verse eight, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi knows there's there's nothing in Bethlehem for them. There's hardly anything in Bethlehem for me, much less them. It's not their home. They're going to be far better off going back to their own home. Naomi knows my future is hopeless. It's too late for me to start over, but not for them. Ruth, Orpah, there's still a future for you. Don't throw your life away by coming with me. Go back home. Get a second chance. Under the law, she knew that if a, if a woman was widowed, the dead man's brother would, would marry her to provide an heir. And so Naomi calls on that and says, listen, listen, even if I were to be able to get married today, have children, have sons, would you wait that long for them to grow so you can marry them? Listen, this makes no sense, she's telling Ruth and Orpah. There's no logical reason why you would come with me. That makes no sense. Go back home. You can start over there. You can find a husband, have children there, have security, have a happy life, have a better life there. She says, go back and leave and may Yahweh bless you as you do. She invokes the name of Yahweh to say, "Uh, Lord, would you bless them? First, would you show kindness to them? Because they have been kind to my sons and they have been kind to me. It seems that the way that Orpah and Ruth had treated their family is to be commended. They had loved their husbands well and they had loved their mother-in-law well in the midst of this grief. And Naomi says, Lord, they have been so kind to me. Be kind to them. And she says, Lord, would you give them rest? And surely what she means by rest is that they would have the security and the provision and the comfort that comes from having a stable family that could provide for them. Lord, would you give them the rest that they need? She's calling upon the name of Yahweh saying, Lord, would you deal kindly with them and would you give them rest? Two themes that will unfold throughout the book as we go on. This is what she wants for them. And it's worth noting that what she desires for her daughters is entirely logical, right, and loving from a human perspective. Naomi in these moments is actually being quite loving to her daughters because she, is, she could say to them, well, listen, I'm going back. And even though there's nothing for you there, I'll be all alone if you leave me can't you just keep me company? We can do this together. But Naomi knows that's not what's best for them. What's best for them is that they leave me. 
I, I, my, my life is hopeless. I'm beyond help. I'm going to go back alone, but I don't want them coming with me because I want what's best for them. I want them to be able to have a happy life and a secure future and a new family. I want them to have the second chance that I'm not able to have. And so out of love for them, she's saying, please leave me. I don't want you to share the same fate I do. Do you see the love of Naomi in these moments? She, she's doing exactly what she thinks is right and what is best and has their best interests in mind, even if it means more hardship for her and more loneliness for her. And yet here's what Naomi doesn't factor into the equation. There's a hidden factor here that makes all the difference because she is saying something entirely logical from a worldly perspective. In fact, there's really no arguing with her on a human level. But there's another factor here. When Orpah makes the decision to go back home, Naomi doesn't condemn her. Ruth doesn't condemn her. And our narrator doesn't condemn her. This decision makes sense. Naomi knows. Naomi knows what it really means. Verse 15, she's trying to persuade Ruth to follow Orpah. She says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. See, Naomi's basically saying to Ruth, she's done the smart thing. Why don't you just listen to her? Ruth, this is not a hard decision. There are plenty of other things that are difficult. There are plenty of other hard decisions. This is easy. Follow her back home. And yet Naomi realizes, and Orpah realizes, and Ruth realizes, that to return back home is not just to return to their people, it is to return to their gods, to their pagan worship and idolatry. And that is why Ruth says, no way. The reason Ruth says, I'm not leaving, is because she will not turn back to those pagan gods. She's sticking with Yahweh. Naomi wants to do what is best for her daughters. She doesn't want them to suffer. She doesn't want their future to be hopeless. She doesn't want them to be stuck in the same despair she is in. But she is not factoring faith into the picture. Naomi is urging her daughters to abandon the Lord and pursue idolatry and asking Yahweh to bless them on that journey. In other words, if Naomi was making a list, what do you really want for your daughters-in-law? following Yahweh would not have been at the top of her list. What she wanted for them was a happy and a healthy family, a happy life, peace and prosperity and security, more so than she wanted them to be following the Lord. And in this, there is still a danger for parents today to learn from. Because parents, I know you really want what is best for your kids and you wanna see them happy. You do not want to see them suffering. You want them to thrive and to flourish in all of their endeavors and you want to see them have a better life. You want to give them a better life than you were able to have. You want them to have a good career, a happy life, a wonderful family. And all of these are noble and right desires. But do you desire those more than you desire their spiritual well-being? Are those things more important to you than that they're following the Lord come what may? Put it differently, if you're in the same spot as Naomi, what do you want most? The path of Orpah or the path of Ruth? On one path, it's sticking with the Lord, but living as a social outcast without provision and with no future, with no family and with no means to provide for themselves. On the other hand, you have pagan worship, but a spouse and kids and a brand new start at a happy life. Which one do you desire more for your children? if you're really honest. It means nothing if your kids have a successful career and a good reputation and a thriving family if they forfeit their soul in the process. The most important factor in any decision is the walk with Jesus. And this is important for us to consider not just as parents, but as individuals. Would you rather march toward apparent prosperity even if it means you're not committed to church or to Christ? Would you rather forsake some of the comforts of this life if it means having a stronger walk with Christ in the process? Church, let it be that the next generation sees in us a church that is, has a radical faith that prizes Christ as more precious to us than anything else with marriage or kids or career or happiness and says, Jesus is worth more to me than all of that. That if I'm presented with these two options, there's no doubt which one I'm choosing. I'm sticking with the Lord, come what may. Even if it leads to more difficulty and more hardship in life right now, I'm sticking with Christ. May that be 
what the next generation sees in us as a church, a, a people who prize Christ more than anything else. But for Naomi, in this moment, it seems that family and comfort and happiness were more important to her than faith in her decision-making. And even for those of us who profess and possess faith in Yahweh, it is easy for us to live day-to-day, moment-by-moment, as if our decision-making doesn't really factor in faith as most important. See, Naomi has good theology, and Naomi has not forsaken the Lord, even though she feels he has forsaken her. Naomi has not abandoned her faith, even though she's experiencing a crisis of faith. Naomi is not someone who has walked away from the Lord. She just basically has a kind of faith that doesn't really affect her day-to-day decision-making. And so, too, do some of you have that same kind of faith. You know what's true, but the question is, do you put it into practice? Does it affect how you live and how you walk and how you engage on a day-to-day basis? Do the decisions that you make day by day about money and possessions and sex and family and comfort reflect what you believe about God? Or look more like doing whatever is right in your own eyes? Well, then Ruth comes along. And Ruth shows us what a life truly lived by faith looks like. And Ruth has a remarkable statement in response to Naomi. Naomi's trying to say, listen, go back. Go back to your gods. Go back to your home. Have a better life there. And Ruth says, no way. Verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Do you see Ruth's remarkable statement, her confession of faith in the one true God? She even invokes his name. May Yahweh do so to me. She's she's claiming, I believe in your God, Naomi. That's why I'm not leaving. I'm a follower of Yahweh. I'm clinging to him. I'm not leaving him. I'm not going back to my gods back there at home. I'm sticking with the one true God. Do not ask me, Naomi, to leave you. I will never leave you, and I will never leave him. I'm not going back home. It's an amazing kind of love. This statement is often read at weddings and situations like that, and it's wonderful to do so. It's understandable. It's an incredible loyal love and kindness. And it is good and right and proper to say to a spouse or someone you're planning to marry, where you go, I'm going. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stick with you. That's a good thing to say. And yet sometimes Ruth is taught and studied as if it is about romantic love and dating and romance and all those things. But though there might be elements of that, this book is not primarily about dating or courtship or romance. It is about God's providential provision and kindness towards his people. And do not miss that in chapter one, when Ruth says these things, it's a wonderful statement to say to a loved one. But when Ruth says these things, she is essentially saying in this statement, there are more important things to me than romance and family and lineage. I will not elevate family above all else, Naomi. That's what you're asking me to do, to elevate my happiness and my prosperity and my family above everything else. But I will not do that because Ruth is convinced there are more important things to her in life than that. More important to her than that is sticking with Yahweh as her God. Your God, Naomi, will be my God. She clings to Naomi. She will not leave, and she expresses loyalty to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She's sticking with her. This is commendable, exemplary loyalty, and the reason for that comes into focus. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. I will not leave Yahweh. She has come to faith. She has come to trust in the God of Israel as the one true God, and she will not leave even if she shares the same fate, Naomi will. And it seems Ruth expects that to happen. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. She's not just pledging loyalty to Naomi for the remainder of her days, as if, hey, you know what, Naomi, you're in a pretty bad spot, so you'll probably die soon when we get back to Bethlehem, so I'll stick with you through that, and then I'll just go back home. There's plenty of time for me. That's not what she says here. Where you die, I'm gonna die. And where you're buried, I'll be buried there too. Ruth is saying to Naomi, I will share the same fate that you share. And Naomi knows she's going back to a hopeless future. As social outcasts with no provision and no hope, 
And Ruth says, me too. Ruth says, more important to me than worldly comforts or than any of these treasures is my God. So what would cause something like that to happen? How can a person from the depths of sorrow that Ruth has experienced come to trust in the God of Israel? See, what happens is when our circumstances block out the goodness and the provision of God, we can be tempted to turn away and say, it's not worth it. But at the same time, in those moments, it can also be an avenue for us to strengthen our faith in him and say, where else am I gonna go? I need something solid to stand on and nothing in life is giving it to me. Uh, The only place I can go for the sure solid rock is Christ. Friends, so long as you put your hope and your trust and your security and your happiness in the comforts of this earth, you will leave yourself open to crushing disappointment because everything in life can and will at some point or another fail you. There is no treasure on this earth, whether it be your spouse or your kids or your money or your possessions or your career or your luxuries or anything else that can ultimately give you the security and the rest and the comfort that you so desperately want and need. The only solid ground for our souls is Christ Jesus, who is the rock. And God steps into Ruth's life. He intervenes in these moments when everything else is going wrong, when all her hopes and her dreams are crushed, when she has no happiness, when she's faced with the temptation to run back to other gods, what happens? The true God of Israel steps in and changes her life. To a pagan Moabite woman who is destitute and hopeless, who is easily overlooked by the world, the Lord shows grace. And there is no one this morning who is too far from that same grace. No one this morning to whom the Lord also will not and cannot extend grace to you. Maybe you feel like your life is hopeless, like there's nowhere else to turn, like everything has gone wrong. And it seems like you're tempted to just give up on God. In those moments, friends, throw yourself upon the only solid rock for your souls. All other ground is sinking sand. Only in Christ will we find the security that we really long for. And maybe this morning, you're tempted to turn back to those other gods. It might not be the gods of Moab, but there are idols all around us and idols that lurk within us, calling to us to come back. The temptation to run after the God of prosperity and forsake Christ in the process. The temptation to run after the God of sex and turn away from Christ. The temptation to run after the God of success and say, you know what, I don't need Christ, I'll get it somewhere else. Where is it right now in your life that you are being told, why don't you just make the logical choice and turn back to those other things? I guarantee you, you're being told that. Voices from outside and from inside your heart calling to you, come back. Come back to those things that seem so joyous, that seem so, so, so much better than the life that you have right now. The voices that say to you, you know, your life is just too hard. Do you see where following the Lord has gotten you? Is this really all it's cracked up to be? Is this really what you were wanting? Is this really worth it? Your life seems miserable right now. You can find a better life over here. You can find more happiness here. You can find more joy here. Why don't you just come on back? Remember how pleasing that sin was? Remember how pleasing those idols were? Remember how pleasing it seemed? It sure, sure seems like it gave you more happiness than God's given you right now. Come on back. When those temptations come into your heart, perhaps it seems from a worldly perspective like it's right, like it's logical. Because it's true that following the Lord doesn't mean the most immediate prosperity right now, today. And yet Ruth is a reminder to us that there are more important things in life than all those other things. The most important thing is Christ and knowing him. And she says, listen, where you go, Naomi, I'm going. Why? Because your God's gonna be my God and I'm not leaving him. So we cling to Christ as the only rock for our souls. Let Ruth's response be our response. We sang it last week. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We let these things go. Why? Not because they don't matter. Not because they don't bring us joy. And not because they don't bring about tragedy when we lose them or don't get them. But because we know that God is worth more than any of that. And following him is worth it, that he is the rock for our souls and I'm sticking with him, come what may. This is the kind of faith that Ruth demonstrates and emulates for us, a kind of faith that we ought to strive after and to follow in our lives. May ours be a kind of faith that prizes Jesus more than anything else. I'm sticking with Christ. 
even if it leads me to the grave and I'm dead and buried, I will not forsake him and I will not depart from him. That's the faith that Ruth is demonstrating in these moments. So we see the compounding grief of Naomi. We see the astounding loyalty of Ruth, but there's a third scene in our text. And it is the confounding providence of God. It doesn't make sense to them in the moment. And there are times where it doesn't make sense to us either. They come back to Bethlehem. Ruth is accompanying Naomi. And they come into Bethlehem and they are the center of attention and not in the way that you might like to be. But in the way that people are whispering about you, giving you strange looks and is that Naomi? Is that really her? It's like when you go to your high school reunion and there are some people there after many years who, uh, quite frankly, you're surprised at how good they look and how successful they've been. Like, but I did not see that one coming. And so there's some of those people. There are also those people, though, that you look at and you say, life must have been really hard on them. They're, they're nothing like what I remember. They seem to have it all together, and now they've got nothing. It's Naomi. She comes back to Bethlehem after a decade away, and all the women in town are looking at her and say, is that really Naomi? Is it really you? Life has been very hard on this woman. And so she responds in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's the response of someone who has endured unfathomable grief. She went away full, she says, and she has returned empty. Which is not entirely true. She has Ruth with her. In these moments, Naomi is not exactly thinking too clearly about what she has. She does have more than she realizes, but she also recognizes what she has lost. And she says, call me Mara. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has testified against me. The Lord has brought this upon me. And you say, well, can a believer talk like that? And the answer is, if not, we better remove a, quite a few stories from our Bible. The Bible is filled with examples of believers talking like this. Now, Naomi is not exactly the model we should strive toward. Naomi does look like a woman who has lost hope in the Lord to work on her behalf. She has not forsaken her faith, but she seems to be rather hopeless in it. But she does know the Lord is in control. He's the one who's been doing these things in my life. And all she can see is his bitter providence. And some of you know what it's like to experience tragedy, and it does no good or no help to pretend like God had nothing to do with it. When the accident changes your life, when the medical diagnosis shatters your illusions of a peaceful and long life, it can be tempting to find comfort in pretending that God had nothing to do with it. But Naomi knows better than that. She knows that God is all-powerful. He can do what he wants. And so in his providence, he has allowed these things to come into her life. And so she is confused at his providence. And she has come to think, well, God must be dealing bitterly with me then. What do you do when those feelings come into your life? when you can see the frowning providence of God toward you and it feels like everything in your life is going wrong and you wonder, has the Lord turned against me? Has the Lord forsaken me? Why is he hiding his face from me? Why is he not answering my prayers? Why does he seem so distant? And why does it seem that he is dealing bitterly with me? What do you do in those moments? Some of you know what that's like. Others of you will know what that's like. This is an experience that all Christians come to at some point or another. And this is what the Bible calls lament. It's a common experience for believers in this life. And Mark Rogoff, a pastor, he, he wrote a fantastic book about lament. He called it Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. He says that to cry is human. We come out of the womb crying. To cry is human. But he says there's something distinct about lament. He defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a prayer and pain that leads to trust. And so he says, while crying comes naturally to us, he says, lament is different. The practice of lament, the kind that is biblical, honest, and redemptive, is not as natural for us because every lament is a prayer. It's a statement of faith. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Belief in God's mercy, redemption, and sovereignty, they create lament. Because without hope in God's deliverance and the conviction that he's all-powerful, there would be no reason to lament when pain invaded our lives. 
So he continues, therefore, lament is rooted in what we believe. It is a prayer loaded with theology. Christians affirm that the world is broken, that God is powerful, and that God will be faithful. Therefore, lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Church, we need to know how to process the grief and the pain of a broken world. We live in the waiting. Christ has come, but he has not yet returned. So we live in the brokenness. We see the effects of the curse all around us and within us. And we need to learn how to live and deal and process with the pain and the grief of a broken and fallen world. And the Lord gives to us the language of lament to use, to bring our concerns to him, even when he's the one we're confused by. To not just come to him when it says, well, so-and-so did something that I don't understand. Feels like so-and-so is bitter against me. But to come to him even when we say, Lord, you're the one who I don't understand. And you're the one who it seems like has dealt bitterly with me. I don't get it. Now, it's never right to be angry at God. He has never wronged us. There is never anything he needs to be forgiven for. Anger with God is always sinful. But that doesn't mean where there, are time, where there aren't times where we feel like God does seem to be very bitter to me right now. God, I know you're not, but you seem quite bitter toward me. I know you're there, but I have no idea what you're doing. It makes no sense to me. You feel so distant, so far, and it, I, I don't get it. God, what are you doing? That God can handle those prayers. In fact, God gives us the language to bring to him in those prayers. He says, come to me, I, I, I'm big enough, I can handle that. When you're caught in those moments of wondering, what is God doing, of the pain of living here, and say, I don't get it, and God seems bitter toward me, we come to him, not away from him. And he says, I can handle it, come to me, come to me. See, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. God is kind toward Naomi and Ruth, and the rest of the book's gonna show us that. But what happens is in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our grief, we can get tunnel vision and miss it. That's what happens to Naomi here. She misses it. First, she misses that she hasn't really come back as empty as she thinks. She has Ruth right there, who has just professed astounding loyalty to her. Naomi has more than she thinks. But even beyond that, Naomi misses what God is really doing. See, Naomi, it's interesting. She ascribes to God and his providence the hardships that have come into her life. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me, but she doesn't recognize how God has also provided for his people in Bethlehem. You saw that in verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Do you see that? Naomi realizes God's the one who's done these things bitterly to me, but she doesn't realize that God's the one who's also provided for his people with food. She gets tunnel vision. What, ha what can happen in our pain is that we can look at all the things that are going wrong and think, God, you, so you, you, I don't know what you're doing. And we miss what God is doing to provide for us. God is always at work doing his purposes, even when we cannot see what he's up to. This is one of the few places in the book of Ruth where it is told the Lord directly intervened in the narrative. And he intervenes, what? To provide for his people by sending food to Bethlehem. And Naomi doesn't seem to ascribe it to him. She doesn't seem to recognize what he is doing. And it can be easy for all we, for us to, all we can see is the frowning providence and the bitter hand of God. But when that happens, here's what we need to hear. The Lord has visited Bethlehem to provide for his people. See, amidst famine and darkness and sin, bread has come to the house of bread. The Lord has visited his people. And do you see how the Christmas story is set against the very same backdrop? how this story is in many ways a prequel to the story that is coming later on. See, Jesus entered into a world that was filled with darkness and sinful rebellion and spiritual famine. That's the world he stepped into when he entered to the scene. The prophet Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so Christ steps into a world of darkness and says, I am the light of the world. Christ steps into a world that is spiritually hungry and says, I am the bread of life. And Christ stepped into a world that was dead in their sins and said, I have come that you may live. I am the resurrection and the life. The Christmas story is this very same message. God has visited Bethlehem and the bread of life has been given to the house of bread that people may eat and be satisfied and live. If we are ever tempted to doubt his provision, or doubt his faithfulness, or doubt his providence, look no further than the manger in Bethlehem. Many years after this story in Ruth, where God lay in the flesh, God came into a world of darkness and brokenness, and he was made just like us in every way, yet without sin. 
The rebellion that plagued each one of us didn't even touch him, and yet he willingly subjected himself to the very same curse for us. And think about it. Do not, don't we all long for this kind of loyalty that is shown by Ruth to Naomi? Don't we all long for someone to be loyal to us like that? Say, listen, I'm not going anywhere. I will not leave you. There's nothing you can do that will cause me to go away from you. We all want that kind of love. We want someone to love us like that. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Where you go, I'm going with you. Only Christ can give us this kind of love that we so desperately long for. Only Jesus can pledge covenant commitment completely. Only Jesus can give us loyalty to us forever. Only Jesus can say, I will never turn away from you, no matter what. Not just to the grave. Ruth says, Naomi, I'll be buried with you, but through the grave into resurrection life. Only Christ can go with us there. And the best of spouses and the best of kids and the best of success and the best of worldly prosperity cannot give that to you. Only Christ can give you that kind of never ending, never failing, covenant, steadfast love, not just for a moment, but for an eternity without end. Only Christ can give that. Naomi says, Lord, would you deal kindly with Ruth? And the Lord has dealt kindly with us in giving us Christ, the bread of life to those of us who are spiritually hungry. This has come to me not by anything we can do or would do or could earn or could merit, but all by his grace. To those of us who are living in sinful rebellion, doing whatever is right in our own eyes, he says, come to me and I will give you life. And Naomi says, Lord, would you give them rest to to Ruth? And the Lord has given rest to us. That we can put an end to our striving and our anxiety and our attempts to earn God's favor by the work of our hands or by the merits of our hearts. And we come to him and say, listen, I can rest in you, Lord Jesus, and your finished work for me. There's nothing I can do to earn it, but all what you have done for me, given by faith. See, the world will tempt you to turn back to other gods, to worship other things, to find more joy, more happiness elsewhere, and to embrace the comforts of life as your ultimate goal. But Ruth as a prequel to the Christmas story, reminds us of the covenant love and faithfulness of God. The God who Ruth clings to by faith, but the God who clings to her and who clings to us no matter what. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and I will see you through, not just to the grave, but through the grave to everlasting life for all who will trust in him. And we believe that this God is worth it all. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of hopelessness, where we are confused and broken, say, he's worth it. He's worth it. That's what Ruth's doing. It seems it's what Naomi must have done. There there must have been something over the course of the previous decade in Naomi's life and what she said and how she lived that caused her daughter-in-law to say, there's something about that Yahweh. He must be real. Even in the midst of their hardship, Ruth, and it seems Naomi must have been, are powerful pictures, even when held to imperfectly and faintly, that God is worth it. It's Christmas, so I got, you know, so think about how the Grinch tries to steal Christmas and he robs it all, so he's waiting and he looks, and, and what happens the next morning is they come out and they start singing with joy. And he thought, if I take all the gifts away, if I take all those things away, guess what? They surely won't rejoice that morning. And when they come out and sing, it's a powerful witness to the fact that there's something deeper than the gifts. And when Christians, from the midst of hardship, when they don't have things they wish they had, or when the things they had have been taken away, or when the things they have don't satisfy them like they thought they would, when the Christian from that moment, from the ashes of a broken life, says, the Lord is enough, and sings with joy in his provision amidst the tears, when that happens, there's a powerful witness that says, he is enough for me, and he matters more to me. He's a greater treasure to me than all the comforts of this world could ever offer to me. Jesus came to provide food, said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he offered up his body unto death. He shed his blood for our sins. He says, come to me and eat. The Lord has visited Bethlehem to provide food for his people and all who trust in Christ will live. To those people who are in darkness, he says, come and see the light of the world. To those people who are in, in the famine, He says, come and eat the bread of life and you'll be satisfied. 
and to the people who are caught in their sin and doing whatever is right in our own eyes is come and see the Savior who is born for you. God is always at work when we cannot see it. And the best proof we have of that is found in the manger at Christmas, where God has visited his people to bring us life. I've said it before, I'll I'll close with this. Uh, Jonathan Gibson a few years ago wrote a beautiful and moving children's book called The Moon is Always Round. And in the book, he tells the story of a father and his son. And every night before going to bed, the father asks his son, hey, you look up at the moon. And he looks at the moon and says, what, what shapes the moon tonight? And so he says, whatever those fancy terms are for whatever shape the moon is and, um, that I don't know. And so he says, that's, that's what shape the moon is. Oh, wonderful. But what shape really is the moon? And every night, the moon's always round. Doesn't always look like it, but the moon is always round. And as the story goes on, the, uh, the family's excited about the arrival of a new baby sister. Uh, and she tragically dies, and at her funeral, the dad looks at his son and says, what shape's the moon? The answer says, but what shape really is the moon? The moon's always round. And what does that teach us, son? That God is always good. There are times where it looks like clouds block out the moon, or you can't see the whole full shape of it. Sometimes all you can see of the moon is a little sliver of it, but that has not changed the shape of it one bit. And there are times when the clouds of life block out the goodness of God, the provision of God, and we can't see much of it, if any of it at all, but that has not changed the shape of God's goodness toward us. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And the book of Ruth points us toward the Christmas story to remind us of God's faithful provision for his people, visiting Bethlehem to give us the bread of life that we might have eternal life with him forever. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your provision for us. We see the brokenness of this world and we grieve and we mourn over the the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that we experience on a daily basis. And we long for the day where you will come and make all things right. So we say, come, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, would you strengthen us to hold fast to you by faith? That Ruth's confession of faith, her confession of loyalty, both to Naomi and to you, God, would be ours. And we say, Lord, where you go, I'm going. I'm not leaving you. That whatever you bring into our life, Lord, May we be anchored to hold fast to you as you hold fast to us. We thank you for your kindness and the rest that you have given to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask this in his name and we ask this for his glory. Amen.